Uh, so we're continuing our series on the theme of generosity. Uh, so far, we've learned that generosity flows from God's self-sufficiency, from his freedom to be generous. Uh, he's never coerced to be generous to anyone or anything. He just is. He's generous. And his generosity, we said, is most seen in humans uh, because we're created in his image. And for that reason, uh, we can most represent his generosity to the world uh, in ways that other creatures can't. Uh, that brought us then to consider God's image, uh, which we've spent the last couple of, uh, of lessons looking at. Uh, so by way of reminder, can anyone tell us what the three aspects of God's image are? I'm going to go ahead and unmute everyone. What are the three aspects of God's image? What do you remember? One of them divine, Brian? One of them divine? Uh, not quite. That is, that is his character, his identity, yes. Somebody say something. What are the three aspects of God's image? Dominion is one of them. Yeah, dominion. Okay. What else? Righteousness. Righteousness or, or his love. Yeah. Dominion, love. And knowledge, right? So we've talked about two of them already. Knowledge, love, and dominion, right? So go ahead and mute everyone again. So this morning, uh, we're looking at that last aspect of God's image, his dominion or his rule, or we can say his kingship. Uh, and as we've been doing all along, the last couple of lessons, we want to look at it in light of the theme of generosity. Uh, and so here's the big idea for us this morning. Uh, God in his image is fundamentally a generous king who rules his creation in righteousness and mercy. Right? God in his image is, a fundamentally, is fundamentally a generous king who rules his creation in righteousness and mercy. Uh, I think this one is harder to pin down under the matrix of generosity. Uh, what does God being the king of the universe have to do with generosity? Uh, God being generous in his rule or kingship, I think that just seems strange for us to think about. Uh, plus, we don't normally associate God's kingship with generosity. Uh, so nature tells us that God is powerful. He created the world, uh, but it doesn't quite explain just how powerful God is. 
Uh, so what we want to look at now is the Bible's account of God's power. Uh, theologians have referred to God's power as his omnipotence. Uh, literally, omnipotence means all-powerful. Uh, I can tell you there's a long history um, of how exactly God is all-powerful. Uh, theologians have debated what it means for a very long time. And we get questions like, can God make a rock that he can't lift? Uh, can God create a being greater than himself? I think those are all silly questions. Uh, when we say God is all-powerful, we never mean that God can contradict himself uh, because God never acts outside of who he is. Yet, we can say that he is all-powerful. He can do anything according to his will and nature. Uh, this is perhaps captured best by God's title, El Shaddai, uh, which means God Almighty in Hebrew. And so just think about the way that God created the world. Uh, then you'll get a better picture of his power. Uh, the Bible tells us that God is so powerful that he created everything simply by speaking. He made all things out of nothing. Uh, he didn't just rearrange existing stuff. Uh, no, he spoke all things into, in, into existence. His words were the creative power that made the entire universe. And God said, and there was. Uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Psalm 33, 6. Uh, by the word, all things were made, according to John. I mean, what is that? Uh, we might call it magic if a person created something out of nothing, but that is God's unparalleled power. He is that powerful. He can create things simply by speaking it into existence. And not only did God speak things into existence, the universe is sustained by his very word. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, think about that. God's word upholds our very existence. Whatever he says goes, literally. Whatever he says goes. He is that powerful. He maintains the whole world with his word. And that's just the tip of his power, right? How else has God shown his power to us? And I'm going to go ahead and un unmute everyone. We're talking about it. Okay. In what other ways has God shown his power to us? Or Salvation. What is it? Salvation. Salvation? Totally. Sanctification. What was that? Sanctification. Sanctification. Yeah, that requires a lot of power, doesn't it? Anything else? Huh? Raising people from the dead, resurrection. Resurrection. Wonderful. Right? There's, there's so many ways 
I'm going to go ahead and mute everyone. <clears throat> There's so many ways that God has shown his power to us. He, he can turn water into wine. He can make the lame walk. He can bring plagues at his command. Uh, he can bring sinners to their knees. He can even raise the dead, as Michelle said. Our God is the all-powerful king of the universe. Nothing is too hard for him. And so for this reason, because the Lord is all-powerful, because he can create out of nothing by simply speaking and sustains the world by his word, we should greatly fear the Lord. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask another question. What, is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Reverence. Huh? Reverence. Reverence. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, go ahead and mute everyone again. To have a right understanding of God's power. To have a right Man, that's, that's really good, Steve, because that's where I'm going. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and mute everyone again. So it has to do with reverence and respect. Um, you know, why do we get scared? I think we're, uh, we're afraid that something will go wrong, that we might lose control or that something precious to us might be taken away. I, I don't know what your fears are. Um, maybe it's your sin being exposed or being shamed. And to be honest, there's a lot of things that we can fear. Uh, but ultimately, we get scared because we're afraid to die. Uh, we all have to fear someone or something because ultimately we're vulnerable and we're fragile. Our lives can be taken away in an instant. Uh, this is why we're scared of viruses, we're scared of cancers and tumors, we're scared of tigers and lions. You know, that fear of death enslaves us, according to the Bible, and we are naturally in bondage to it. Uh, we have a natural inclination for self-preservation, and when we are preoccupied with self, we can never be free. Uh, but God is even more frightening than death. I think that's pretty shocking. Uh, God is even more frightening than death because not only does he hold our lives in his hands, but he can send us to hell. Uh, that's why he's often described as a ferocious lion. Uh, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, it's no wonder C.S. Lewis uses a lion to describe Aslan, uh, who turns out to be the messianic figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Uh, and if you've been, if you've ever been to the zoo, then you know how scary lions are. Uh, God is to be feared like a lion, but infinitely more. And so here's what I want to argue. Part of what it means to fear the Lord means we recognize his power over death, that he is powerful. So that instead of fearing death, we fear him. Not in a way that enslaves us, but in a way that liberates us. Uh, because God doesn't actually want to take our life. He wants to give us life. God wants to deliver us from the fear of death. 
Indeed, he is powerful enough to do so, and he has freed us from the fear of death in Christ. It is in Christ's death that the fear of death is removed and the fear of the Lord is put upon us. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, those who have been delivered from the fear of death will in turn fear the Lord with reverence. And so over and over again, we see this positive kind of fear in the Bible. It's a trusting kind of fear. There's actually no good life of, apart from a reverential type of fear of God. Uh, because we can't live the way God wants us to live if we don't fear him, if we don't have a deep respect for him, if there's no reverence and no awe of him. Uh, this is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We see that everywhere in, in uh, Proverbs. And then in Psalm 128, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I think we know this. We're naturally inclined to this. Uh, if a kid doesn't respect his parents, how can, he, how can they truly and really be obedient to them? Because obedience, true obedience, begins from the heart. It begins with reverence in the heart. And so, and so as the powerful God of the universe, it stands to reason that the Bible would describe the Lord as the king. Uh, he is the sovereign king with unlimited rule and power over his creation. Uh, his very name assumes this reality, doesn't it? Um, what's God's personal name? His personal name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Uh, even the way the Jews translated the name captures it, right? Uh, the Lord, Adonai, it, it means master, a ruler who exercises dominion over someone. Uh, but of course, Yahweh, the Lord, is not just some small-time Lord, uh, like a local king or a local deity uh, in the ancient world. Uh, no, the Lord rules over everything. Uh, Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is who is not partial and takes no bribe. I mean, check out those titles, right? Yahweh is the God of gods. Yahweh is the Lord of lords. That is absolute supremacy. Uh, now check out what Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy 6. He, Jesus, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. There it is. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of lords, 
which means Jesus is also on the throne. He shares in God's kingly identity. He's the king of kings, Paul says. Uh, not only that, our savior is the eternal king. The psalmist says, your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. Uh, his dominion, like his love, never had a beginning. And like his love, it will never come to an end. So God, so God is on his throne, whether we like it or not. Uh, the world certainly kicks against it. Uh, they want God's kingship to just go away. They even tell themselves that God doesn't exist. And they repeatedly tell us that believing in God is for antiquated people. It's for the weak and for the stupid. Uh, they refuse to hear creation, creation's testimony. But the world knows of God's eternal power. They see it everywhere, everywhere they look. After all, the heavens are declaring his glory. But they are without excuse, Paul says. Uh, the world suppresses God's power in unrighteousness. But the world cannot kick God off the throne. And they certainly uh, cannot take his place as king. That's... That's good news for us, right? We have a king seated on the throne, an eternal throne. So whoever is in power is limited, <laughs> is not, cannot, cannot ultimately have the final say in anything. You know, as, but as much rebellion as we see from the world, God says he will be victorious that he's going to win because scripture tells us that God, that God is the warrior king. Uh, he's a divine warrior who will ultimately defeat all his enemies. Uh, that is what's underneath the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Uh, listen to what God says to the serpent, right? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and, he, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Eve's offspring, one of her descendants, will bruise the serpent's head. What is that? He, he, he'll be a mighty warrior. He will fight and bring ruin to the serpent. That's God's promise. He is the Lord of hosts. He will do it. And indeed, he has done it in Christ. And this warrior king, we're told, is a righteous king. It's the way he rules his kingdom. He rules it with righteousness. Uh, his creation bears this very message. Um, the heavens are declaring God's glory, yes, uh, but the psalmist also says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Uh, you know, it's one thing for a king to rule over everything uh, but it's another thing for him to rule it righteously. Uh, don't we all hate evil rulers in stories, right? Uh, there's a reason for that. It's because we hate unfairness 
and injustice, at least when it's done to us. Uh, we especially hate unrighteous people in power, uh, those able to impose unrighteousness to their subjects. This is why we hate uh, the White Queen in the Chronicles of Narnia, why we hate Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, and why we hate Voldemort in Harry Potter. Uh, but our king is not like any of those rulers. Our king, in his generous dealing with the world, is unwaveringly righteous. He does right to his people, always. He always does right to his people. Uh, that's exactly what we see when we turn to his law, uh, because in it we find how fair God is, how much he loves justice and righteousness. And so we find things like, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Your righteousness is forever, and your law is true. And so Paul, this is why Paul says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. God has set his law apart for us, that it should be holy. It's sanctified for a good purpose. Uh, but here's the thing. I don't think we're that interested in God's law. I think we tend to forget about it or ignore it. But if we're going to honor the Lord as king, then we need to start valuing his law more. Uh, take, a take a listen to this from Psalm 97. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. I mean, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we can't truly acknowledge God as king if we aren't interested in his righteousness and justice, the things that are foundational to his kingship. Uh, so, friends, we have to stop seeing God's law like it's always a bad thing or that it just cramps our style. Uh, for sure, there's a way of relating to the law that can kill us. Can anybody tell me or tell us um, a bad way to relate to the law? I'm gonna go ahead and unmute everyone. What's a bad way to relate to the law? Bad way would be seeking to find life through obeying it. Absolutely, absolutely. The other extreme would be to treat it like it has no purpose or meaning for us today. Yeah, that, that's, that's uh, I think a lot of people think that. Somebody say something. Yeah, the law reveals our sin. The law reveals our sin. Okay. Definitely true. Focusing on applying it to others, but not ourselves. Yeah, like a in a hypocritical way. Yeah. That's convicting, isn't it? Is you know we we're so we're so quick to point the finger, you know, and we we fail to examine ourselves. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go ahead and unmute uh, or mute everyone, I'm sorry. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's when we become self-righteous because of the law. When we try to earn our righteousness through the law. Instead of the law humbling us, it makes us prideful. That's, that's a way of relating to the law that can kill us. Uh, but when we really understand God's purpose of the law, it will free us from trying to justify ourselves with it. Uh, this is why James, uh, we'll cover this in our series in James, uh, this is why James calls it the law of liberty, right? It's meant to liberate us. It's meant to free us uh, because the law was never meant to, uh, to make us slaves. We become slaves when we pursue the law with sin. And Paul says the power of sin is the law. See, sin uses the law to call us out and our hypocrisy. But God's purpose is to humble us and change us. Uh, that's why the blessed man is called to meditate on the law of God day and night, Psalm 1. I mean, we're even meant to, to love the law, right? Psalm 119, uh, the, the psalmist says, How I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. And so Sean is right. Uh, the law is meant to expose our sin that we might turn from them. That's the purpose of the law. And because we're lawbreakers, uh, we also need God to be patient and merciful to us. Uh, we don't just need him to be a righteous ruler, but we also need him to be a patient king to deal with our sins and our, and our failures. I mean, after all, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, we have no hope if God wasn't a merciful king. We need him to be righteous, but we also need him to be merciful. And so that the law uh, would not condemn us. Uh, thankfully, the king of kings is not only a righteous king, but he's also a forgiving and merciful king not at the expense of his righteousness, but, that, uh, but at the expense of his own life. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Because that's the gospel. That's, that's what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. Okay, let me pause there. Uh, do you have any questions or reflections so far before we move on? I'm going to un, uh, unmute everyone. We could try... You could try going to the Zoom website and going from there. Try, try going to the Zoom website and see if you can enter from there. Try going to the Zoom website. Okay, bye. Slightly unrelated. Does anybody have uh, any questions or reflections so far? When you were talking about the uh, the fear of God, it made me think of Psalm 36, where it says. Um, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sees himself, sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. That's really good. I mean, when we don't fear the Lord, we're, we're being foolish. 
contrary to wisdom, right? And I think that psalm uh, speaks perfectly to that. So, uh, Brian, I remember uh, reading in Mark 4 about Jesus calming the storm. And uh -huh. while the uh, disciples were in that boat, they feared the storm. When Jesus yeah. calmed the storm, uh, they feared him. Uh, Man, he was this fear the storm. Yeah. Uh, but called them ultimately to fear him. And now we can approach him with boldness and confidence. Though we, uh, though we are called to fear him as well, uh -huh. uh, his holiness does not undo us. Right. Well, who is this that can calm the storm, right? I was this close to putting that uh, in the, uh, this morning's lesson, uh, but it's getting too long. But anyways, yeah, that's, that's good. I also think of uh, the sailors in Jonah, right? Same thing. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and move on. I'm going to mute everyone. Okay, God didn't generously create the universe to be a cosmic tyrant. Um, God doesn't hoard power for himself because he, does, because he desires to have us participate in his kingdom, not just as subjects, but also his co-rulers. Um, he generously gives us dominion and authority. Uh, we see this at the outset of scripture. Uh, let's read, if you have your Bible with you, to Gen um, from Genesis 1, verse 16 through 18. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Um, did you notice the language of ruling? I mean, I, I emphasized it. Um, what is that? That's language of authority, right? God gave ruling rights to the sun for the day, and he gave ruling rights to the moon and the stars for the night. Uh, they have their particular domain of authority. And so we see God delegating his authority to the lights in the sky. They are his representative rulers. They are delegated by God to rule the day and the night. Uh, and so now jump down to verse 26 of Genesis 21. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, uh, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so what stands out to you in this passage? I'm going to go ahead and unmute everyone. What's similar with the other passage we just read, and this one? Dominion. Dominion. Right. I'm going to go, go ahead and um, mute everyone. Right. Dominion. Just like the sun, moon, and stars, man is authoritative 
rep is a, an authoritative representative of God. Uh, so man, who's made in the king's image, are God's co-rulers. They rule over the animals and the sea and the earth, right? Everything else, except for the sky up there, the, the sun, moon, and stars, everything else, man is supposed to rule over. He is God's co-ruler. Uh, James affirms this when he said, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. See, the great lights rule the day and night, but people have dominion over everything else uh, because they're meant to be representative of the king's kingdom. Uh, that's why the psalmist writes, you have given him dominion over the works of his hands. You have put all things under his feet. I love the writer to the Hebrews reflection on this passage. Uh, he, basically, he basically says, God really did leave everything under man's control. God left nothing outside of his control, uh, the writer says. Uh, but there's a problem. Uh, the same writer says, at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I mean, what's he talking about? James says all creatures can and have been tamed by man. What's not in subjection to man then? Well, it's death, death. It doesn't matter how hard people try, they still die. Uh, death cannot be subjugated by man. In fact, we're slaves to it. Man is conquered by death and death conquers man. So at the present, we don't see everything in subjection to him because man still dies. And so we needed a king to taste death for us and to sub subjugate death. We needed him to conquer it. Uh, so yes, we don't presently see death under our control. We will still die. But in the death of the king, the writer uh, to the Hebrew says, he will bring many sons to glory. That's our hope. That's our hope. Though at the present moment, death is not subject to us, but because the king has died, we are promised to be brought home into glory. And so if you want to see the king's greatest act of generosity, uh, look no further than the cross of Jesus. The king himself conquered like no other king ever did uh, or nor ever will, for he did not conquer by force. He did not conquer his enemies with violence. He overcame his enemies by giving himself over to death. Uh, Jesus chose to wear a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. You know, I said earlier that God is a powerful lion, greatly to be feared. Uh, but he's also a gentle yet conquering lamb. Uh, that's the way the king wins, as a slaughtered lamb. Uh, John said it like this in Revelation. We spent some time in that book, right? Uh, he says, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Remember those titles? 
and, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Uh, beloved, if you were to see a man crowned with thorns hanging on a cross, what would you think of him? You see, the kingdom of God is an upside-down realm. It turns our expectations on their heads. If we were honest with ourselves, none of us would see a king hanging up there. Uh, we would never in a million years presume that the power of God is on display at such a shameful event. Because it's not fitting for a king to hang suspended between pieces of wood. That's weakness, not power. But I want you to remember that the true king of the universe triumphs over sin and death, not with the sword, but with a cross, not with strength, but with weakness. Now, the Bible tells us that the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. And to the world, such a message is nothing but sheer and unmitigated foolishness. It's a cause for stumbling. Many trip over it. But God says his foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. And you see, the cross is both the wisdom and power of the true king. And that's why Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is, it is the power of God. And so what do we learn from the way God rules and overcomes the world? What can we glean from a king willing to lay down his life for his enemies? Well, we learn what his kingdom is like. A crucified king teaches us that we overcome when we are weak, not when we are strong. Because if the king willingly lays down his life for us, should we not do the same for him or, and for one another? And so his kingdom then is characterized by this radical generosity of laying down one's rights, one's very life. A kind of generosity that puts the interests of others above one's own. We see the king's generosity. It is not mere abstraction. The heavenly king came in the flesh to unleash his generosity to his kingdom. He was crucified that he might bless us, that he might be generous to us. And so that we who are made in his image and citizens of his kingdom might enact his generosity to one another and to the world. Uh, yeah. What that looks like is what we will consider in the coming lessons. Um, so it's about that time. Do you guys have any final questions or comments? I'm going to unmute everyone. Yeah, if, uh, would you say that this is accurate? I had sort of a rumination while you were talking about um, us as representatives or vicegerents um it seems like unrighteous rule and we're all called to exercise that kingship even in a small k way 
in our own spheres and lives. But unrighteous rule is always authority separated from the other offices of prophet and priesthood. And I think of Adam and the test and, you know, trial of his authority. He subjugated himself to the serpent rather than uh, exercising that kingly rule, calling forth the word of God against the serpent's lies, and then warring and sacrificing the serpent uh, to God. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, it, does that make sense? Does that, does that seem accurate? Yeah, so are you trying to like, connect all the, the different aspects of God's image? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, that like the kingship is, it's not separated from the, the the priestly office and you know so it's like for us to be those vicegerents right we also need to keep our other feet in these other realms as well and not just exercise authority for the sake of authority right um and abuse it but to be mindful that we are called as these vicegerents to be prophets and calling forth god's word and, and humble sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we see that, we see that, you know, all uh, culminating at the cross. Jesus' th- uh, threefold office culminating there, and we see it in, in a beautiful kind of harmony. And, and it is our calling as well, right, to, to enact prophet, priest, and king, um, to, to love with our, with our hearts, right, and, and, and our will, uh, and our minds, all of those things are, are to be complementary uh, in the way we, we uh, or extend the kingdom of God. And we're not only supposed to be righteous, but we're also uh, to love and to, to be sacrificial and merciful and so on. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's that's pretty much along the lines of what I was sort of thinking as well as like when, you know, as a father and a husband, when I'm exercising sort of that kingship in my family, if it's separated from the humility of like sacrifice and priesthood um, or from the word of God, right, then it's it's an unrighteous rule and authority. Yeah. Um, right. Good. Yeah, thank you. That, that was good. Good reflection. Any final comment, rebuttal, um, you know, just criticism? <laughs> All right, in, in the next couple of lessons, I know we're taking a break next week, but I want to look at the way, um, you know, God's image is reflected on us and and how, how we ought to to be generous in light of God's image uh, as image bearers, right? And so all of these things kind of will reflect uh, toward who we are as image bearers. And that's kind of what we'll look at in the next coming weeks or so.